0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of Leaders in Supply Chain. I'm your host, Radu Palomario, and my pleasure to have with us today, John Manners Bell. John is the chief executive of Transport Intelligence, which is one of the leading market research companies, especially in transport and logistics industry, in the transport and logistics industry. And he's also the founder of the Foundation for Future of Supply Chain where he and his team deal with a couple of topics related to different manufacturing companies, how they operate and how they send their footprints around the world and global supply chains in general. So, John, pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Radu. It's great to be with you. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. So maybe, maybe tell us a little bit, first and foremost, how did you end up in logistics, in transport, in supply chain in the first place?
1: Well, I get, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I guess transport's not really the career which everybody chooses, and maybe we'll go on to discuss that a little bit later on. But I sort of fell into it because my father was running a, a transport company in the UK, and he'd come to it uh, sort of from you in know indirect way himself. So uh, my early memories of working you uh, know in, in a warehouse and loading loading trucks and. Also on working on the freight forwarding side, so getting a bit of background there, and uh, it was you know it was fantastic working for a small company because you got to do absolutely everything. So one day I'd be working on accounts, the next thing I'd be loading trucks or driving trucks or working in the warehouse. So it gave a really 360 degree view of the industry. And after after a few there, years there, I went back to university and got myself a postgraduate degree in transport planning and, and management. And from there, I worked in a in a couple of specific transport related consultancies before finally Ending up as a, a marketing and PR manager for UPS Worldwide Logistics, as it was at that time, where I had uh, a great few years flying around Europe and the rest of the world, and and helping them develop their business strategy, as it was at the time. So that's how uh, that was my sort of early years, and then eventually I established TI Transport Intelligence and Market Research, spotted a there was a, a huge gap in the market as the, the overall industry became a lot more professional, and uh, I've seen that over the last 30 or 40 years as companies have moved from sort of operational and entrepreneurial model to actually understanding that they they need to become a lot more professional. And I think that's that's been that's a great theme actually, probably to discuss and develop a, a little bit later on. So for the last 20 years, I've been running TI. That's given me the opportunity to to write books. My my latest book, The Death of Globalization, for example, is just been published. And I do a lot of uh, speaking at conferences, lecturing at universities. And
0: that's part of what makes me tick, is inspiring the next generation. Well, but I, I must say, as opposed to most people that came to the podcast, and in fairness, most executives that I know in supply chain and logistics, you actually went and studied logistics and transportation so you know big up your parents must have done a great job in terms of inspiring you because typically the the typical story is i you you also said it that i fell into it most people actually fall into like there's no sort of formal education actually transport logistics it's, it's a fairly older in the scheme of things supply chain is much much newer if you if you try to get some sort of a bachelor or master's or god knows what i mean i think mit started mitx started a few years ago there's maybe the last 10 years There's stuff in supply chain but even that is fairly embryonic let's say so you're one of the few that i know so you must know something john um, <laughs> that has, been, has been trained formally in this now on the on the topic of you mentioned death of globalization you know your book I'd love to to ask you some questions. It's it's a very real topic. I mean, I think geopolitics, the way that it's playing out, different. I mean, China and U.S. kind of are the big elephants in the room, but all the all the other moves that are triggered, and, and then you have Russia and India and all this this stuff. Yeah. So tell us a little bit. What's your main findings and why death of globalization? Is it really the death of globalization? Well, yeah, quite a a controversial
1: title. I think, and one which I think I came about really just to to try and get some sort of response because because I think the issues are absolutely enormous here and people need to start thinking about, companies need to start thinking about this. It's, It's not just business as usual now and I think we have to look in the context of really the last 40 or 50 years, you know, in the 1970s and 1980s, this globalization really was being seen as the, as the, the only model to adopt. And it seen that, that there would be a inevitable progress towards this, uh, what a couple of books at the time in the early 90s were saying was the,
0: the world is flat and the end yes. of history, <laughs> you know. That, that, that was exactly going, the, the, the title of the book. I remember reading it, the world is flat. <laughs> that, that's absolutely right. And it was, there was a belief at the time that the borders would just be rolled
1: away and, uh, <laughs> hope, you know. When China acceded to the World Trade Organization in 2001 or 2002, it was the, that was seen as part of this inevitable march of progress. And the World Trade Organization was, was reducing tariffs, so there were frictionless trades. These were all the buzzwords that were going around. I think everybody believes that China would give a taste from the prosperity, which was being global trade was, was creating. And then they would naturally then come into the sort of Western mindset, you know. And we've seen how how well that's that's gone down. You know, this has obviously not not happened. And not only China but other emerging markets, what they've done, they've really benefited from globalization, and they've generated huge wealth. But then they've directed that wealth to their own political aims and. We're seeing that with the Belt and Road Initiative by China as it's been able to extend its soft power throughout the world and really challenge the uh, USA's you know, leadership of, of the world, both physically, culturally and economically. So things, things are changing. And obviously, the, the USA's woken up to that and its allies have woken up to the, the, the power now which, which China has, has developed. And it's they well, hold on a second. We see China as as a big threat to us, and that has has translated itself into more export controls. You know, high tech goods not being uh, allowed, and the technology behind them are not being allowed to be exported to China. We're seeing a breakup of the of the w- world trade, a bifurcation of world trade in certain sectors between the U.S. and its allies and China and its own sphere of influence, and. That's very, it's, That will really, I suppose, control the, the way which trade develops and trading partnerships develop in the future. But it's far more complicated than that because obviously the US and Europe are, are not best of friends in terms of trade terms as well. The USA's recent Inflation Reduction Act has been seen as subsidizing its own industry. The EU is developing its its own policies, which will sort of build barriers around around the eu from the carbon border adjustment mechanism for example which will put a, which will a levy on goods coming into into europe if they don't come up to the same environmental standards as the rest of the world so we're seeing a really yeah, balkanization or fragmentation of the world based on these these political economic sustainability issues technological and legislative as well so you know everything is pointing towards the the world breaking up into different regions different hegemonies and this is going to be a huge challenge to global supply chains
0: so if it's fair to say that we are kind of assisting to a regionalization maybe regionalization is not also in capturing it but is this Yeah, it's kind of this clusters where we are seeing, so from our work perspective, we've seen massive demand of companies asking us to find them talent to relocate a manufacturing facility in Mexico in particular. So for North America, Mexico has gained dramatically, specifically Northern Mexico, the developments there, there's not enough people for all the distribution hubs and manufacturing facilities built. Yeah. Then we have some, you know, Poland has won quite significantly in Eastern Europe. There's some other hubs. And then you have Northern Africa. That's also in Morocco. And even if Egypt has had its fair share of issues with the currency and, and all of that, it's still, it's still also quite well in that manufacturing hub perspective. And you have Southeast Asia from the China going down somewhere else than China perspective. So you have this as, as a regionalization. However, still on the global side, and you did mention the tech side, where yes, clearly US and Europe are trying to keep away. I mean, it's the whole the whole semiconductor debacle, yeah, where they're trying to keep the most advanced chips so that China cannot have the most advanced tech AI and whatnot. But by and large, for most of the rest of the stuff, because of the raw material level, you either have the raw material or you don't. (laughs) And if you don't, well still have it's kind of you can we can argue that it's still kind of a global Market because you cannot have cobalt or whatever lithium or so. I guess my question to you is more on, apart from this high-tech side, which indeed there seems to be a clear techno-war in place for raw materials. It's still fairly difficult to do. How do you see it in the context of raw materials? This deglobalization, I mean. Yeah, you have a very good point there. You know, if you look at Africa, that is
1: where a large amount of these raw materials are extracted. And we've seen China really push into these these countries. It's invested really heavily. It's made loans to a lot of African, uh, Congo, for example, countries. And it's put its own people into there. And it's building out the infrastructure of these countries as well. They're doing it from the perspective of they want these raw materials moved to China, nowhere else. That's their thinking. That's their bottom line. You know, they, they want the goods to be moved, these extracted rare earth metals or whatever minerals, say tin, tungsten, titanium. They need all these raw materials. And so they've established Belt and Road Initiative to be able to, to move these raw materials to China, which has left the rest of the world playing catch up and trying to find ways. Because even though these elements are being extracted from Africa, a the large proportion of the trade is being controlled by China. So is that global? Well, it's it's trade, but it's it's an extension of a sphere. So again, it's a sort of race, it's a competition, and countries, other countries, have to develop their own links to Africa, or they have to find their own resources. You know, where the lithium, I think the American companies are looking to South America now. But again, obviously, China recognizes that, and it's and Belt and Road Initiative is working in South America as well, where they have strategic partnerships with with all these. So it's, you know, it's fundamentally competition, and fundamentally,
0: the, the West is losing out as all these minerals are being sucked into China. And I want to link this regionalization, let's call this, call it like this for the sake of this conversation you do a lot of work at transport intelligence looking at different logistics and transport companies do you see a pattern in some of this we talked about mexico or southeast asia or you know eastern europe or are there pet you know the, the red dots on the map the heat maps yeah did you see a pattern where all of a sudden also these logistics companies put out more operations because it's just a natural you have more economic activity of course you're going to have more logistics companies because you need to transport more goods do you see some sort of a correlation or, or, or not? It doesn't show in the logistics side as well?
1: Yeah, no, exactly. We're seeing a big investment in, you mentioned Mexico a little bit earlier. Let's, let's talk about Mexico. Certainly, we're seeing a big investment by U.S. logistics companies and railroads into North Mexico because there are the U.S. manufacturers are looking at diversifying their risk away from China to market much closer. So this this idea of, of near sourcing. I mean Mexico's been doing for years, but now with we're, we're seeing a real momentum there. And of course, not just be from a political perspective, but also of course during COVID, manufacturers and retailers in the US were really hit hard by the congestion in the West Coast ports. That you know, so they are now recognizing that there are all types of different risk which weren't on their radar before which they need to take into account and it's it's much easier for them to have a supplier based across the the border just a, a few hundred miles away from where they are and which they can they can bring goods in in a, in a few days rather than actually you know s- A month or six weeks or even longer as it was just last year you know doing doing this whole disruption so it's a way
0: of mitigating
1: risk not just political risk but also uh, logistics uh, risk
0: as well and okay looking at a bit longer term i don't think it's a philosophical question i think it's a practical question but with this regionalization how do you see shipping lines (laughs) in a sense that well you know you don't need to the whole point is not to need a boat to get stuff, well, ship a ship to get stuff from China all the way to North America. If, you know, one, you produce it closer in Mexico or God knows, somewhere in South America, and then you hopefully build some rail or uh, road transport that can still, ships will have the volumes, but by and large, it's not going to be that intracontinent trade. So what's your view yeah. on in, in China? well i certainly think these these trends are a headwind
1: you know, to global shipping international shipping and transpacific in, in particular i think you know we'll see with general economic global economic growth that there will the demand's not going to go away overnight but we are going to see much more demand for intra regional intra asian volumes of containers. And I think that's where the the growth is is going to be. So I think one of the difficulties has been, and I suppose this this is slightly more philosophical, but you see that emerging markets have been let down by the West on a number of occasions over the last few decades. If you look back in 2008, 2009, the investment dried up to many emerging markets During the COVID crisis, shipping lines were moving and blanking many emerging markets because they wanted to put their shipping, their all available shipping capacity on the Trans-Pacific or the Asia to Europe lines. And this left a lot of emerging markets out in the cold. And so consequently, politically, that has refocused them. That needed to be the case, in any case, um, with the amounts of money coming from China. But it's refocused on the Chinese market as being their primary market rather than looking towards North America or to to Europe. And a lot of countries were talking at the time about should they return to nationalized state-controlled shipping companies in order to move their goods, because the major major shipping lines were not providing them with the service that they need so it's a big strategic issue for them
0: mm, fair point now we talked a little bit also about diversity yeah? and well specifically women in logistics women in supply chain uh, it's not that uncommon still to this day <laughs> that you end up at the conference or god knows where you see 90 percent men or you know there's men they call them yeah well Fortunately, less and less, but there still are. Yeah, you, know, you see, conferences are only men, and then I know you were telling me that you've done some work around how can we attract and what does it need? What do we need to do to attract more female and to keep them in uh, logistics, in transport, in supply chain? So maybe let's talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is you can approach this issue from many perspectives. Some work that we did with the for the foundation for future supply chain on gender diversity, and one of the aspects we approached it from was the economic benefits, making the economic case for companies to actually increase the numbers of women that they were employing. And there's a a huge driver shortage at the moment. We just talk about freight transport, and figures provided by the International Road Transport Union suggest that between, you know, 1% to 2%. The driver population are female. Now that that suggests that this is an enormous missed opportunity, just in economic terms, let alone anything, talking about anything else. And so, consequently, the industry really has this imperative to improve its attractiveness. Now, how does it go about that? Well, if you look at again, if we look at the driving sector, then it is known for being very hard physical work it's also known to be quite dangerous in terms of truck stops for example there are very few truck stops relative to the numbers of trucks so consequently a lot of truck drivers have to overnight by the side of the road for example and we're all aware of that um, cargo crime is a huge issue so unless these fundamental issues are addressed by, by governments then you're not going to attract women to the industry. I should say that those are issues which need addressing anyway for, for male drivers, which have been long overlooked. But unless these issues are addressed, and that's just on the operational side, Companies, if they want to attract women drivers, maybe they have to look at the the way that their their networks and their models, how, how their operating models work. So, for example, having fewer overnight stays, you know. So, more one company I know has changed the way that it's actually rostered its drivers. So, therefore, consequently, they're not spending as many night nights away from home, and so constant. And this appeals very much more to. The female demographic, who are able then to get back to the the home at the end of the day rather than spend it away, rather than nights away. So there are many ways in which both companies and governments can address address
0: this issue, but it certainly needs addressing. And have you seen some, so you, you mentioned some, one example where they address this with the how much time do you need to spend away from the family, but have you seen any, and we can give positive examples, right? So I don't know if you have any, any company in particular that's done better than the average, than the median. It can be a manufacturing company, it can be a logistics company. And what specifically did they do, in your opinion? Because you've seen quite a few. Now, I don't want to put you on the spot as well. I know that you have a lot of clients, so maybe you end up in trouble (laughs) if you pinpoint one over the next. But anyways, now now I asked you. (laughs) Yeah,
1: well, no, I think certainly companies at the, as you might call, the the more value-adding end of the market. So companies who are working under contract logistics, for example, I suppose they have an, an, an easier job in many ways because their flows of, of their business, their goods, what they're being asked to do is more stochastic. And in, in that's what I mean is they know what they need to do on a daily basis. They know the routes that their trucks will be taking. They know that the time scales. And so As they're able to schedule the work more consistently, therefore they can then build in working practices which will make it more attractive to a wider demographic and not only to women but also to younger people as well who also are less willing to spend time away from from home, time overnight. So they have an easier easier job because they are working on a contract basis. But if the international road freight, for example in, in Europe, There's a large amount of Eastern European drivers who, many of whom are away from their own country for many weeks as they go across the European Union and into the UK or wherever. And they are asked on a daily basis or told on a daily basis where their next collection will be and where their next drop off is. So it's the, it, it's far more chaotic in terms of their, the international road freight side. So in answer to your, to your question, I won't specifically mention any logistics companies, but certainly the, the contract logistics companies are actually doing a better job and they have an easier job at making at scheduling and their business uh, to make it more uh, to friendlier to, to women and to uh, younger people.
0: Got it. Final question from me. I have to ask you, a uh, you know, AI, artificial intelligence, chat GPT, all of this is making the news since the beginning of the year. I guess we uh, every day there's a, new <laughs> there's a new thing, a new app, a new whatever. How do you see it impacting perhaps the more, I don't want to say traditional, because I don't know if it is necessarily the right word, but, tech seems to take a bit longer uh, for various reasons to penetrate logistics transport supply chains also because it's quite complex where do you see is gonna is gonna hit first so let's just take because supply chain is one thing let's take logistics transport do you see certain areas where it's gonna hit first what is it going to automate who's gonna lose their jobs who's gonna win
1: Yeah, well, I, th- I think certain parts of the logistics industry will really benefit from the areas which have huge workflows. So looking at the last mile sector, for example, the express parcels uh, sector, where you have a huge volumes of goods being moved around systems and so many that actually people, humans, are just not very good at making decisions in real time. And any advances in technology and AI, this is part of the part of this, which will automate those decisions, will release a huge amount of value within the industry, you know, and working in real time, taking into account congestion, for example, uh, or many other different issues, which are impacting upon a drivers delivery round and diversion, rerouting to, to, on a dynamic basis. But all these when you're talking about thousands of vehicles and you're talking about hundreds of thousands or millions of parcels, the humans, the role of the transport manager or whatever, just is not able to maintain that, to make those decisions on a real-term basis. And this is where these these automating technologies really will
0: will impact absolutely but as a friend said and he's in shipping so he was asked on a panel is he worried about artificial intelligence and his response was something to the extent no i'm not because in shipping it takes us five years to start doing whatever now most industries are doing so by the time it reaches us it's all good (laughs) so (laughs) it's kind of positive kind of not but (laughs) it was one response but on that note, John, thanks a lot for the sharing, for the many good good examples and, and stories that you told us today. Keep up the great work and great to have you and thanks for the time.
1: No, thanks very much. I've really enjoyed our conversation, Reddy.
0: Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you like what you heard, be sure to go to www.elcottglobal.com and click the podcast button for all the show notes of the interview. Also, subscribe to our mailing list to get our latest updates first. If you're listening through a streaming platform like iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, we would appreciate a kind review. Five star works best to keep us going and our production team happy. And of course, share it with your friends. I'm most active on LinkedIn, so do feel free to follow me. And if you have any suggestions on what, what to do and who to invite next, don't hesitate to drop me a note. And if you're looking to hire top executives in supply chain or transform your business, of course, contact us as well to find out how we can help.